0: Here uh, this morning, we're in Leviticus 8, Leviticus 18, and there's a, a lot to talk about here, and we're going to spend four weeks kind of going through some of these things, and it's it's a huge issue, this idea of holiness and sexuality, and so uh, we're, we're praying that God is very faithful to us as we go through these things. We're going to go slowly. This is an issue we want to be very uh, careful on, and so we're not going to just rush through this. This is some things that I know uh, many people are, are struggling with and are trying to think biblically about. And so we're going to to, to not rush and want to really encourage you if there's some things that are um, things you've struggled with or there's some pain in some of these things, uh, we'd love to talk with you and think about how God can just be very gracious to you in this area. Uh, it's It's... A little uncomfortable for me. Someone, someone in between services said, um, Have you gotten some sun recently? I said, No, I just finished preaching. I'm just blushing still. <laughs> so that's not, not totally comfortable sometimes, some of the things we're talking about, but this is God's word. It's good. It's, it's intimidating because there's so much to cover. Last night I did what you should never do as a pastor. I was getting ready to go to bed, and I was like, Oh, I have a couple books. That I, I wonder what they say about this issue. And I made the mistake of pulling them out. and I'm flipping through them. Oh, this is good. This is good. I should have included this. In fact, one of the books is by Denny Burke. It's one of the books I'll be recommending. It's called, it, was called, it is called The Meaning of Sex. And so uh, Whitney leans over, and there I am, reading this book by D- Denny Burke, The Meaning of Sex. And she goes, double-checking? And <laughs> not what you want your wife of 17 years to say to you as you read a book with that title. Uh, but she assured me she was just talking about the sermon. So um, I was, and there's just so much uh, good, good things here to, to think through, and hopefully God will help us as a church as we go through this. Um, let's uh, stand with me, if you're able to, as we read Levit- Leviticus 18. This is kind of our anchor passage as we go through this series. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Leviticus 18.1 saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord None of you shall approach any of one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness, I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother; she is your mother, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife; it is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall, not, uh, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord." You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination, and you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants." But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Father, we do ask for your grace upon us as we talk about these things and give us uh, joy and delight in you as we obey you. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. About 15 years ago, when I was an associate pastor at, at Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, I, I had the opportunity to, to preach. Didn't get that opportunity very often, so I was kind of excited about it. And I, I preached a sermon from Song of Solomon on purity. And a few weeks after the sermon, uh, the guy who ran the website came up to me and said, Hey, uh, Daniel, kind of some exciting things. Uh, your, your sermon is the most downloaded sermon ever on the Bethany website, which I thought was pretty cool, very exciting, and and thought, well, of course I need to tell this to the senior pastor, to Rich, and let him know, and he was super excited, too, Uh, although he, he also reminded me that I had the least downloaded sermon on the website also but i don't think that i don't think that the that the downloading of my sermon was due to the fact that i just did this amazing presentation or had this amazing rhetorical ability i think the subject the idea of purity and the peace that purity brings was very encouraging to people because it's an area that then as now many people are are struggling with and there are many people who are hurting in this area and and so the message was encouraging to them because People who love God want to know, okay, what, what hope do I have in this, in this area with which I'm struggling? A few weeks after that, that experience, maybe, maybe a month or two later, a uh, Pastor Art at Living Hope Community Church had a family emergency during the week. He said, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be able to prepare a sermon this week. Daniel, can you preach for me on Sunday? I'll, I'll be there, but I, I need someone to, to cover for me. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll preach the same text. And so I went to Living Hope. And I, I read the text, and I sat down during the special music, and I was going to get up and, and preach in just a moment, and I, I read the text, and I sat down. So I read the text from the Song of Solomon and sat down, and Art leans over, and he says, where are you going with this? In other words, I hadn't said anything, just, just the text itself made him uncomfortable. And I, I understand where he's coming from, right? And certainly those of us who are in the pastoral ministry can sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable with, with talking about these things and I, I assured him no I, I preached this at Bethany Baptist we're good he said okay that's fine then and so preached, preached the message. Now what, what I think that illustrates is a tension that, that exists within the church. There are people in the church who are struggling all of us to some degree are struggling to think biblically about the issue of sexuality and yet at the same time We as pastors and teachers and maybe all of us in shepherding relationships are a little uncomfortable with talking about these issues. So people need to hear what God's Word says on this issue, and yet at the same time, we're uncomfortable. As a pastor, I would say I'm uncomfortable sometimes sometimes talking about these things i want to make sure that a sunday morning is the right context that i don't say too little i don't say too much that i'm i'm sensitive to where people are at i, I don't want to to cause further damage in some people's lives i don't want to be i don't want to be too um, i don't want to be too graphic and yet i don't want to say too little there's just there's just a lot of tension there right but this is an issue we need to talk about in, in fact related to that i would just say to, to those who are younger in our church there may be more kids in, in first service, but for those of you who are younger who would even say, okay, I'm not exactly sure even what this, this word sexuality means, I would, I would just describe it this way. When we're talking about sexuality, kind of a, a basic understanding, we're talking about something that God has created. It's, it's that thing that causes us to be attracted to another person. It's the thing that God gives us that allows a, a husband and wife to want to be physically close to one another. And it's something that God has given us to glorify him. There's a lot more to it than that. But for those of us who, who are younger, kind of not exactly sure about what all these things mean, we just know it's something that when we hear a word like that, mom and dad t- change the channel on the TV or something, that's kind of what we're talking about. This, this thing that God has created, it's good, it's from him. It's what causes us to be attracted to other people. It's what God gives to allow husband and wife to want to be physically close to one another. It's something that God has given us to glorify Him. Now, what is my goal? What are my goals as we go through uh, these these topics? One goal is this. I, I want us to have some healthy conversations. There are some conversations that need to take place in the church and i want them to take place in a healthy way so i hope that i foster some healthy conversations among friends maybe some of us as we're going through this topic will say you know what i have been shaped by my culture in some very profound ways i haven't been convicted of the sin And yet I want to love God. I want to be holy in this area. And so I need to have a conversation with some people. And those conversations will take place. And this is kind of a safe time, kind of a hopefully a good motivation during this time as we go through this for you to talk to a care group leader or another shepherd and say, hey, you know what Daniel has has been talking about on Sunday morning, I would like to talk with you about. He mentioned there's some books that we can go through together. would love to do that. Hopefully some conversations will start as a result of this, this series, conversations that you know needed to happen some time ago. Good conversations with our kids. You know, I kind of view myself as a person who tries to protect my children from getting instruction in these areas that wouldn't be biblical instruction, and yet what happens? We drive down the road, and my, my kids see billboards. We're in a grocery store and they see magazines and words on these magazines that kind of advocate an understanding of sexuality that is not the understanding that I would want them to have we we go on vacation we get on a subway and someone walks in the subway and begins uh you know just singing a song that has I'm hoping you know praying Lord help my kids not understand the words of the song because this is definitely not what I want them thinking as they think about the relationship between men and women so hopefully there'll be some healthy conversations that'd be one of my goals Another goal, and I know this this morning we're going to be doing a lot of review and and some some ground uh, laying here. Another goal would be that we recognize unbiblical worldly thinking that is influencing us. We are such a product of our culture, so immersed in our culture. I think sometimes it is difficult to recognize that our thinking about sexuality has been shaped by our culture, but it has. In fact, I want to share some statistics with you this morning, but I, before I put those up, I, I, don't want, I, I don't want to put up a bunch of statistics about, and sometimes when we're talking about this issue, we, we put up statistics that say, you know, 15% of Christians have done this, and 30% have done that, and 80% have done this. And, and I, I don't want to do those statistics because... First of all, I don't want to shame people. This isn't a message designed or a series of messages designed to make you feel bad about things that have happened in the past, to not experience God's grace in the present based on things that happened in the past. That's, you know, I, I don't want, uh, I don't want to, to categorize this by different, you know, like the 40% of us who have done such and such need to sit over there, and the 10% need to sit over here, and you know, that's, that's not what I want to accomplish as we go through this series So I want to show some statistics, and these statistics are more about what our culture believes about these issues right now. In other words, as we find ourselves in the Western culture, I'm going to show you some statistics statistics from different Western countries, and this is what our culture currently believes about these, these issues of morality. Now, some of these there's several things on this graph, and, and some of them we'd say, ah, I don't think that's a moral issue. Some of them we think, yeah, it is a moral issue. But but the big ones are the things I want to kind of draw attention to. So for example, here's a, here's a statistic from, uh, this is from Great Britain. And the question is, do you, personally, do you personally believe that blank is morally acceptable, morally unacceptable, or is not even a moral issue? And I know you, some of you probably can't see this very clearly, but what I want you to notice is that yellow or gold portion of the, the bar graph. That's the portion of people in, in this, this slide on Gr- in Great Britain who would say, what you're talking about there is, is morally unacceptable. So here in the, the top of the bar, 70, 78, 76% of people would say that an extramarital affair is morally unacceptable, but that is the only issue on here. And again, some of them we'd, we we talk about whether or not they're morally they're morally unacceptable or not. But that's the only issue on here that gets over half of the respondents to say that that's morally unacceptable. So when it comes to abortion, uh, less than a, or a quarter would say that's morally unacceptable. When it comes to homosexuality, less than one in five would say that's morally unacceptable. When it comes to physical relationships outside of marriage, uh, only about 13% would say that that's morally unacceptable. And this is from Pew Global uh, Research. When it, Look at another country, uh, the country of France. and In France, less than half would call anything morally unacceptable. Even an extramarital affair, only 47 percent said that was morally unacceptable. Then it it goes down from there. Uh, More people would say alcohol use is morally unacceptable than homosexuality or sexual relationship outside of marriage or abortion. About five percent would say divorce is morally unacceptable. Now again, why am I sharing this? Not, Not to shame. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 as he describes Sexual sin says, and such were some of you. And so I think God is much less concerned about what's happened in our past than he is about what we believe about sin in the present. What about America? Here's some statistics from the United States. Eighty-four percent would say that an extramarital affair is morally unacceptable, but about a third would say that of homosexuality. A little under half would say abortion is morally unacceptable. And a little less than a third would say something like uh, sexual relationship outside of marriage is morally unacceptable. Now, now what does this tell us? What what do these graphs, statistics tell us? To me, they tell us that we live in a culture that by and large has said God does not have authority to speak to us on these issues. It's interesting, in all of those three countries that were surveyed, the area in which most people say it's morally unacceptable, the the area they identified was an extramarital affair, now why is that? It's not because God says so, it's because on that issue, most people say, well, you're, you're hurting someone else, and that's why it's morally unacceptable. In other words, you and I find ourselves immersed in a culture that no longer believes that God has authority to speak into our lives in the area of sexuality. We're not accountable to him. We find ourselves in a culture that's committed to the idolatry of sexuality, to to the worship of, of sexual pleasure. We're essentially, on the basis of technology alone, we have almost completed the sexual tower of Babel there is no sin that we would wish to commit ourselves to that we're restrained from committing at this point in our culture. Almost. Almost. And it's only going to increase. So I want us to recognize worldly thinking as we go through this, this series. I want us to have some healthy conversations. And, and, and thirdly, another goal would be that we, that we replace wrong thinking with 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 biblical thinking there are people all of us to some degree who are hurting in areas of our life and i I want us to think biblically about this area those who have rejected the christian worldview will say well christians christians are against sexuality or the the repressed and, and i would say very gently that is not what christians are against right Uh, Our children's ministry would give very clear evidence. We're not against sexuality, right? We're not against those things. What are we against? We're against destructive forces that devastate families, that harm souls. We're against the destruction of something that that God has given us as a gift. We're against taking something that's supposed to point to the glory of God to be a means of, of eternal joy and benefit and turning it into something that causes harm. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to lay out some principles over the next four messages. I'm, I'm gone next week, but then this morning, then three more messages. And I want us to just think rightly about this issue. Now, let me re- remind you where we are in terms of context. We're, we're talking about holiness in Leviticus. And remember, here's, here's the main thing that we saw about holiness. As we began this, this series a few weeks ago. What do we see? Here's the main idea. Without holiness, that is, separating ourselves from sin and consecrating ourselves to God, we will not see the Lord. In other words, holiness is a big deal. What is holiness? Holiness is is uh, devoting ourselves to God, that is, we're consecrating ourselves to God. And you want to ask, well, how holy am I? You are holy to the degree to which you are devoted to God's glory. And holiness means, okay, I'm, I'm separating, I'm Separating myself from sin, I'm devoting myself to God and his glory. And what do we see in scripture? We see without holiness, a person will not see the Lord. Now does that mean we, we work to earn our salvation? Absolutely not. We come into salvation. We come into a relationship with God through faith, placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet, what do we receive as we do so? We, see a, we receive a new life. We're transformed by the gospel. And God begins that, that work of sanctifying us, of making us more and more holy. And if we do not have in our, our hearts a desire to grow in holiness, we ask ourselves, am I really in relationship with God without holiness, which is given to us as, a, as God's gift by his grace, without holiness separating ourselves from sin, consecrating devoting ourselves to God, we won't see the Lord. It's a big deal. The believer should constantly be striving for holiness. Now, how does that relate to sexuality? Here's here's the main thing I want you to think about as we think about this, this series over four weeks. It's this. Holiness and sexuality is fueled by love of God and is expressed in our love toward others. Now, let me just stop there for a second. What is holiness and sexuality? Well, it's fueled by love of God. It begins with us loving God, and as we go through Leviticus, as we go through Deuteronomy, as we go through the Old Testament, we see this. In the end of the New Testament, we see this. We see this link between. Okay, first of all, there's love of God, and it flows into love of others. And as we see sexuality described in Leviticus, oftentimes it's in Deuteronomy, other places, it's often in sections where we're talking about how to rightly treat our neighbors. So we love God and we love our neighbors. And part of loving one another includes this this issue of sexuality. Holiness and sexuality is fueled by love of God and it's expressed in our love toward others. Sexuality is part of, of treating one another rightly. We'll talk more about that. And holiness and sexuality brings life and blessing. So let's, let's dive in here. Here's some principles. Number one, here's the first thing that I want us to think about. Number one, sexual ethics in the Pentateuch, sexual ethics are grounded in the one flesh relationship that God creates in Genesis. In fact, turn over to Genesis 2 with me, if you would. Genesis chapter 2, and again, some of this this morning is going to be a review reminders, and hopefully it'll help us as we go into some more difficult things in the weeks to come. What I'm saying here is that you don't come to Leviticus 18 and encounter sexuality for the first time in the Pentateuch. The person who Moses is talking to isn't going, uh, Moses doesn't start talking Leviticus 18, and, and people are like, well, hold on, uncovering that. What, what are you talking? I don't even know what that is. And and where did these hundreds of thousands of people around me come from? No, they they already understood the issue of sexuality, and they under already understood what's laid out in Genesis 2. Leviticus 18 doesn't occur in a vacuum. In fact, sometimes what's interesting is people who would attack Christianity and our what we believe that God teaches about sexual ethics, they say, well, hold on. Um, Why would you hold to the things that are in Leviticus 18 about um, incest or about homosexuality or about adultery and yet uh, won't have a ham sandwich? And that's condemned in Leviticus as well. So why why hold to Leviticus 18 but not the other things in Leviticus about dietary laws or about what to wear? And, And the answer is this. This one flesh relationship that's mentioned in Leviticus 18 doesn't begin in Leviticus 18. The marriage relationship begins much earlier, it's at the beginning of creation. And this relationship between a husband and wife throughout Scripture is used as a picture of God's relationship with his people. So it begins in Genesis 2 as a picture of God's covenant faithfulness with his people. It's, it's an expression of that. It's a picture of that that we experience in our, our, our lives, instituted by God much earlier. And in Leviticus 18, God is instructing this culture in how to live in, a, in, in faithfulness to that picture that is created in Genesis 2. This is how the Israelites were to live, part of the way that the Israelites were to live in faithfulness, that picture that God is trying to create. Therefore, the, the parallels for us in our culture are, are much easier to see because we still have that one flesh relationship, that marriage relationship. that's to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. It's, it's repeated in the New Testament. So he, here's a couple things that I want you to see here in Genesis 2. The first thing, as you're looking here at Genesis 2, I want you to understand about the sexual ethics that are grounded in Genesis 2. The first thing that I want you to see about sexuality is that it's, it's blessed. God creates it with a purpose. He creates it with the purpose of bringing glory to him, and that's, that's foundational. If you ever wonder, why do I have sexuality? Easy answer, the purpose of sexuality is the same as the purpose of everything that God has created and blessed. The purpose is to bring glory to God. And how does that take place? How does sexuality bring glory to God? Well, look at the text here in Genesis 2. In verse 7, God forms man. And he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. It says in verse 15, he, he, he puts him in the garden of Eden to, to work and to keep it. So verses 9 through 14 kind of describe the land. And God puts the man there. He commands him, saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Then verse 18, now all throughout Genesis 1 and 2, God has been engaged in this act of creation. And then he'll see his creation. What will he declare? He'll say, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's good. Now, for the first time, as he looks at his created work, he he doesn't say that. In verse 18, he says "This this is not good as he looks at man. This is not to the point of completion. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And we've talked before about what that means, this idea of companionship. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So it talks about all the the names, the animals that come before Adam. For Adam, it says in verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And... The man sees it and he's excited. He says this sees her and he's excited. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is this is a, a person who is distinct from all the other animals. It's it's someone who's designed to be in a relationship with me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then in verse twenty-four we have the, the theological foundation throughout all of Scripture to understand this this sexual relationship, this marriage relationship. Of which sexuality is a part, verse twenty-four. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the foundation. And God sees this, and and we, we see is the the totality of the creation story is presented there at the end of chapter one, and in chapter two, He, he calls this. All of it good, of, of which this is a part. He, he blesses it. And then verse twenty-five tells us something very, very important. It says the man and his wife were both naked and were were not ashamed. God here is the creator of marriage, the marriage relationship. Therefore, he's the creator of sexuality. He determines its purpose, and it's part of this purpose of marriage, which is to bring glory to him through oneness, through oneness. In this companionship that includes physical intimacy, there's there's no, at this point, there's no sexual sin. There's no adultery. There's no pornography. There's no shame. There's just delight and joy in one another's companionship God sees this and he calls it good why is it good it's good because it's from this relationship that procreation comes children are a blessing before the fall no just kidding they're always a blessing they're always a blessing in this sexual relationship there's, there's blessing because it's a it's foundation of family. It's a place in which closeness can be expressed, love can be expressed, companionship can be expressed. Marriage can be consummated. This is a good thing. Then what happens? Again, this is helping us understand sexual ethics throughout the Pentateuch, this, this foundational passage. What happens next? Sexuality becomes warped. In Genesis 3. Genesis 3 shows us how the purpose of marriage is, is distorted. It, it shifts from being this one flesh relationship to a relationship in which autonomy is demanded. And now, now shame enters it. After the fall, verse 7 says, The eyes of both Adam and Eve are opened, and they knew they were naked. There, there's shame now. They, they sewed fig leaves together. There's there's hiding. They made themselves loincloths. You come down into verse 16 and he says to the woman I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing so that the the fruit of the sexual relationship is now going to bring pain In pain you shall bring forth children and then this this one flesh relationship is challenged your desire and this isn't a a nice kind of desire your desire shall be for your husband in other words there's going to be this this uh, desire to to Um, attack his position and he shall rule over you and this isn't a nice benevolent shepherding rule it's a it's a harsh rule there's going to now in the marriage relationship fallenness has entered and as you go through the rest of the story in the Pentateuch you see the the fruit of this this fallen relationship Now, now here's what I want you to see It's not just the relationship that's attacked in the fall. This relationship is a relationship designed to glorify God in, in all aspects, including sexuality. And in that, that sexual relationship, there is joy, there's delight and companionship. That's rejected after the fall. As you go Through the story of the patriarchs, as you go through the rest of the Pentateuch, you see incest, you see rape, you see adultery, you see polygamy, you see all sorts of of sexual sins. And here's the deal, it's not just this one flesh relationship that's rejected, it's it's the blessings that are rejected as well. The blessing of family, the blessing of of joy in relationship, all those things are are rejected as well. And oftentimes, both in this culture and our own culture, those blessings are called curses. The Canaanites would have rejected this one flesh relationship and they would reject the blessings as well. The Egyptians would do the same and the same is true in our culture. The foundation of sexual ethics, this is what I want you to see, The foundation of sexual ethics in the Pentateuch is is the idea of oneness. And the rejection of that and its blessings is what is sinful. And yet what do we also see? We see sexuality being redeemed. We see in Genesis 3.15 that this promise of a deliverer. And as we go through the story in the Pentateuch, we see this, this hope of a promised redemption. And that includes the area of sexuality and what it happens whenever Jesus comes and in G- Jesus comes there is there is redemption in fact in Matthew chapter 1 there's something kind of subtle but it's also very beautiful in Matthew chapter 1 there are five women who are mentioned and each of the women have something in common that is association with sexual disgrace in a culture for which shame is a big deal you have Tamar mentioned she's she's here in the Pentateuch and and she has a relationship with her father-in-law you have Um, rahab a prostitute mentioned in that genealogy you have ruth who who her, her people come from an incestuous relationship you have bathsheba who had an adulterous relationship you have mary who was looked on with suspicion by her husband all of them are associated somehow with sexual sin and yet yet what do we see as the fruit we see the fruit of the redeemer first corinthians six we see something beautiful Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 is a verse that many of us should just memorize and meditate on. What does it say? As it describes these sins, including the sexual sins, Paul says, And such were some of you. In other words, these things that define our culture are are, are not who we are anymore as we've received the righteousness of Christ. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, that is a beautiful truth. And hope for us as we think about our ability to live in obedience to God. Second thing, second principle, go through a couple of these kind of quickly as we lay the foundation for coming weeks. Number two, sexuality is to be expressed in the context of a permanent marriage relationship between one man and one woman. We'll talk more about that in a few months. A little bit more in these few weeks, but when we get to Deuteronomy 24, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the the picture in Genesis is so clear, right? And that's, that's the basis, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is the basis for coming to Leviticus 18. Here's the third principle as we think more about Leviticus 18. Sexual morality is based not on the decrees of culture, but on submission to a holy God. Look at the text now Leviticus 18 Listen to what God says He says speak to the people of Israel this is verse 2 and say to them I am the Lord your God and then verse 3 you shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you live so I don't want your basis for sexual ethics to be where you you've come from he says and I also don't want you to do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. So I don't want that to be the basis either. Is you shall not walk in their statutes. And the word statutes carries it with the idea of something being engraved, something being etched in stone. Because I, 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 I don't want what you believe about this area of life to be based upon what these cultures are firmly convinced of. There are some things that the, the Egyptians were firmly convinced of about how to conduct oneself sexually. There were some things that the Canaanites were firmly convinced of about how to conduct themselves sexually. If you were an Israelite and you came into the land of Canaan, you said, okay, how should I go about practicing my, my farming? Sexuality would be a part of that, and sexual practices that were an absolute deviation to, from what God would have his people do an absolute violation of the one-flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. That's the culture they're going to, and it's so ingrained in that culture that the idea of living any differently would be completely foreign to them. Now now here's what I want us to think about as we go into this, this series as a church. There are some things that are engraved in our culture, some some presuppositions about how a person should think about sexuality, that that to question those presuppositions is, is to be considered laughable, ridiculous, foolish. Brothers and sisters, I want to exhort you to foolishness in our culture's eyes because it's the only path to joy and blessing. Young people, single people, your attitudes towards sexuality, the decisions regarding what you do, must not be shaped by the, ordin- by the by the statutes of our culture, by what people say is normative, but instead by the Word of God. There was an article, I was reading this last week in Psychology Today, where they're kind of quoting statistics, and they said that young people's not just thoughts, but their actions in regard to sexuality are shaped more by their peers than by anyone else, including themselves. In other words, young people are doing things that they're, they're not all that comfortable with in terms of their sexuality because they think, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Married people, married men and women, our culture tells you that, that pornography is okay, that, that a spouse, um, that the sacrificing for your spouse is, is, a, is a form of, of of holding you back as who you are to be as a person. Men, you know, I I was reading an article this this past week. The the title of the article, and this is in a uh, Huffington Post, the title of the article was, was Why Men Need to Cheat. And even if our culture doesn't always go... That, that blatantly. There's there's this this belief that we're just biological beings, we're bad at controlling our desires. You know, just like sometimes we want a Snickers bar, sometimes we have to give in to our sexual appetites as well. So it is an idolatrous message, a message from the pit of hell, and we need to be aware of that. Say, my sexual morality is not based on the decrees of my culture, but on my submission to a holy God. And that's what God says here In verse 4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. The fourth principle here, sexual purity is the only way to experience the fullness of God's blessing in this life. And what I want for our church is what we see in verse 5. He says, keep my statutes and my rules. These are my, my statutes, the things that I have etched in, into stone, and my rules, that is, my ordinances, the, the things that, that a judge would decree based upon various situations. If a person does these things, he shall live by them. I want the people in our church, those who love the, love God, to have life and peace and joy, and I am absolutely 100 100% convinced that you will not find joy in pursuing the sexual norms of our culture but only in pursuing what God has called you to do for his glory and his word there's much I want to say here, I'm a little long please apologize to the nursery workers but, but just I want to say one more thing here for those of you who, who may feel trapped, I don't want to leave you just hanging for a couple weeks. You say, Daniel, I'm, I'm trapped. I want to love the Lord. I want First Corinthians 6 to be true of me. I want this to be true I, this is who I used to be. But, but what I do right now, what I do this week, here's, here's what I encourage you with. One, just believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Keith Lambert wrote a book called Finally Free, and I, I would encourage you, if you're, you're struggling in this area, you say, I just want to read this book with someone, find someone, read this book together, Finally Free. And he says, you know, every strategy in, in fighting against a sexual sin must be rooted in grace. In other words, we're saying, I understand that by God's grace, I, I've been saved. I've, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And now, now because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I receive his, not just, he didn't, he didn't just die for me on the cross for my sins. He, he did that, yes, but he also lived this perfect life. And now, a life free from any sin, including sexual sin. Now, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I receive his righteousness. My, my unrighteousness, my lust, my, my sin in that area goes to him. His perfect righteousness goes to me. If you're struggling in this area, believe that to be true. You've received the righteousness of of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is now yours. There's no condemnation. I would encourage you to repent, to say, okay, I want to turn from this. I don't want to just, I'm not just sad about losing my sin. I'm sad because I've grieved God, and I want to confess that what he's said about sexuality and its purpose is Right? I, want you to, I would encourage you to believe that Christ sets people free. I would encourage you to be willing to take radical steps, to believe what Jesus says in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, look, if, if your right eye is going to cause you to, to sin, tear it out. In other words, whatever it takes to remove those, those sins in your life that are going to, to threaten your soul, be willing to do those things. And I would encourage you to seek out help and accountability in this area. There is nothing shameful about coming to a brother or sister in Christ and saying, hey, brother, sister, I need someone to pray for me. I need someone to, to go through this book with me. I need someone to walk this journey with me so that I can, can pursue God with a, a, a pure heart, with a, a 100% devoted heart. By God's grace, I, I pray that he gives you people in your life like the people that he has given me and the other leaders in this church that will come alongside us in every area of life and just say, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to keep you walking with the Lord in this area. Holiness is vital to us. And when it comes to holiness and sexuality, God has called us to love him and express that, that love and devotion to him and in how we treat one another in this area of his life for his glory. What that looks like in each life is different, and yet all of us, all of us are affected by the fall in this area and yet by the gospel are being redeemed to pursue him. Let's pray. Father, we pray by your grace you would change us, that you would help us to walk in obedience to you and help us to to love you with our whole heart. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.